All right. Hey, Susan, how are you? Welcome to This is 50, Freedom Through Passions. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I agree. I agree. I can't wait to get into your story because on our pre-call, it was so much fun. And uh, yeah, you're an amazing woman. You're in your 80s. You've written a book. You've you know, you've run a business for 20, 30 years with your husband. You you have a very good story to tell and a good one to share that I think a lot of people are going to find some inspiration on. Before we get started, I want to just ask you four quick rapid fire questions. Sure. So first of all, tell us the best part of your entrepreneurial journey. I think the best part was that it really helped me find myself. Um, I had been in business with my husband for about 25 years. And although it was really fun and I loved working together and I think it really made the marriage so strong. But on the other hand, it wasn't really me. Writing this book, which is entrepreneurship of a different kind, it really helped me identify as a writer. Even though in, in when I was in business with my husband, I did a lot of writing. We were in the film business and I wrote the films. But I never, I just thought of myself as a businesswoman, not a writer. So being an entrepreneur yet again in, in the writing business really helped me identify with who I do at this point. I would, I'd, people say to me, what do you do? And I say, I'm a writer and I say it with pride. So it's done a oh, lot. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And, you know, I think that, I think even in our pre-call, you talked a little bit about you know, it took you a long time to even say that I'm a writer. Yes. You so, know, you know yeah. that I'll tell you when I started to say it, the book was published in 2022 and I've just recently started my second book and it's on the second book that now I say I'm a writer. The first one I thought, well, you know, it was good luck. Everybody can write one book. But now that I've started the second book, I can see how much I've learned, how far I've come it's going much faster. I mean, et cetera. So, but it took me what I mean, I'm 81. So it took me 80 and a half years to say that. I guess I'm a late bloomer. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I love it. Okay. So, all right. So if you're, if, if, I mean, obviously this podcast is meant more for women in midlife who are considering entrepreneurship. Um, sometimes they're a little bit stuck. They're fearful. What advice would you have? for women in midlife who are sort of, you know, a little bit hesitant, but, you know, kind of want to step into the entrepreneurship world, whether it's writing a book, starting a business. I think I'd say a couple of things. Number one, I was terrified too. I mean, I'm, if you're terrified, if you're one of those, and I hope you are, I think it's very a worthwhile fear in the sense that, first of all, it is scary. It takes money, it takes energy, and it takes guts. And second of all, because you're scared, it will help you do some deeper thinking. And at least for me, it forced me to kind of analyze what way I wanted to go. Um, when I was in business with Fred, I had just finished uh, applying for my teaching credential. I had just finished my student teaching and I never taught. I just went into business with him. So I didn't have much time to be afraid or for self-examination. But when I wrote the book, I did because I started it and I don't took about 10 years to write. So I probably started it when I was whatever, 60, 70. And I sort of thought to myself, what am I doing? And it really forced me to examine, is this what I want to do? I'm in the last third of my life. Is this how I want to spend it? So I would say that if it takes guts and be aware of that, it takes fear. 
Don't feel guilty about being frightened. Use it to motivate you. And it's, it's what can I say? It's, it's, it's a very intense experience, but I did enjoy it very much. And I've loved writing the books. And, and the book business is also entrepreneurship. I was thinking about the question a little earlier. Um, and, you know, you have to market the book. And that's not my favorite part, because now I can say I'm a writer. But it, Mark, if you want to sell it, you have to market it. The book is just the product and it, it takes marketing stuff. So I think that answers you. Absolutely. And, you know, that's super interesting you're saying that because the first thing I say when people join my coaching program where I help them come up with an idea and then get to their first client is, okay, you have now officially become an online marketer. So just get to know that because yeah, you have to sell your stuff. And so that's really interesting that you're saying that. Right. So, okay. So it took you 79. Well, I guess so early seventies <laughs> is kind of when you started the, the book. So it took you that long to, you know, get a book in you. So what inspired you to write it? Well, you know, I, it actually, I had, I, now that I think back, cause it took me a while to write. I think I started in my sixties and I had retired from um, our, my husband, our business and I went, I was going to do lunch and I was going to learn to play golf and I was going to do all of those things, which lasted literally about three seconds. I got so bored and I was driving my family crazy. And my kids said to me, mom, if you don't go do something, we may have to kill you. And they said that independently <laughs> of each other. So I thought, huh, I better get my act together because I was bored. I was going nuts. And so I went back to school and decided I was going to like get a PhD in something. I didn't know what, but I thought maybe English, maybe psych, sociology, anyway. So I went to UCLA and of course, of course, all those classes were filled. So I ended up in anthropology and for the anthropology, one of my courses, I was doing a project on women who had hysterectomies and they had all agreed to the surgery, even though it was something that they weren't even sure they needed it, yet they agreed to this irrevocable surgery. And then, so it made me wonder because so many of them said, well, I agreed to this, but I didn't think I needed it. So I wondered how as women do we make medical decisions? I had had a similar experience many years back and where I agreed to some surgery that I didn't think I needed. Thank God it wasn't a hysterectomy. I mean, because it didn't matter and I was fine. But nevertheless, I'm what as women, what do we think? Why do we do this to ourselves? Why don't we research? Why don't we get second opinions? So that was really the impetus for the book. And from there, it just kind of took off and I interviewed a bunch yeah. of women. So it is. Okay. Okay. So it was a, it was a, a sort of a, a kick in the pants from your kids and your family. Yes. Mom, you're going to drive us crazy. You yeah. decided, okay, well, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back to university, like what university in your, in your, I guess, mid sixties. Right. And then, you know, and then this sort of getting down on this path and then the opportunity to write the book. Amazing. Okay. And so because of that and doing all of that in later in life, what, how really has your entrepreneurial journey later in life, especially impacted your overall well-being? Hugely. Number one, um, as I said, and the most important part is now I identify as a writer. 
But on top of that, my husband passed away about three years ago, and I needed something to do, something to help me deal with the grief. And the book really, both books really helped me. The second book has helped me because I love to do research, and I get into it, and I forget how troubled I am. And book number one has helped me because in marketing, I do a lot of podcasts, and I really like the interaction with people. It takes my mind off myself, et cetera. So they both have been hugely helpful. Amazing. Amazing. Well, Susan, let's get into the interview. This is 50 Freedom Through Passions. You and I have, were connected through, I guess, a, a marketing agency reaching out to me, asking if I'd interview. I took one read through your profile and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm gonna read the, I'm gonna interview this woman. <laughs> um, in full transparency, I, I I could not get my hands on the book fast enough to read the whole thing, although I have got a really in-depth view of it. I was, again, reading it last night. Uh, the book is called Sideline. First things first, Susan, give us a little bit of background, who you are, uh, where you're currently living. Tell us a little bit about your previous 25 years with your husband uh, working together. Um, and then, you know, and then the, the, a little bit about the book uh, in terms of the value, the value proposition of the book. Well, let's see. I was in business, as I said, with Fred for 25 years. We made training films for businesses. We did films like on customer service skills, telephone skills, that kind of thing. And as I said, I wrote the book. And then, gosh, then, as I said, I retired, went to school. Now I'm, I'm, I live north of San Francisco in the wine country, which is lovely. We moved up here about 10 years ago to be with our grandchildren. Both my kids were up here. And we I'm originally from Los Angeles and we were driving up to, to Petaluma, which is where I'm located. It's, it's about a six hour drive and we were coming up every two weeks or so. In fact, the kids nursery school teacher thought I lived up here because I was, I was at their school so often. So I thought, well, you know, maybe she's telling me something. So Fred and I moved on up and here we've been here, as I said, for 10 years maybe even 12, I have to think about that. But the wine country is a lovely place to be. And frankly, I forgot the rest of your question. <laughs> just a little bit of your history, like just, uh, you know, just some background. I mean, that, that was perfect. Um, so in our pre-call, you talked a lot about, um, you know, sort of this decision to go back to university after you had retired. You retired in your sort of mid-50s. You mentioned uh, earlier that, you know, you thought you were going to lunch in, you thought you might, you know, learn how to golf and that didn't last for very long. So what, what motivated you other than, you know, you talked a little bit earlier about how your kids, you know, really sort of said, mom, you gotta, you gotta do it. But you know, what was going through your head? You're, you're now retired. You've been an entrepreneur. You've been kind of leading, you know, you've been, you, you kept busy that way. You've, uh, you know, being an entrepreneur, you have to be pretty self-motivated. I, I can't see people who have been entrepreneurs and then all of a sudden they retire and they do nothing. And I think that's where you found, you caught yourself yes. a little well, bit. And, I, and so, so I think what really motivated me honestly was I was besides the fact that my kids, you know, I was the family dynamic was rapidly changing. I had to go do something. But I think what really motivated me was that I was bored and I thought I can't do this for the next I mean, humor aside, I can't do this for the next 30 years or whatever I've got left. 
I'm going to go nuts. Plus I was stagnating. And one of the things I really realized, and I think I said even this when we talked earlier, but when, when, when I was working, if I'd wake up in the morning and I didn't feel good, well, I had to go to work. So, you know, you just put on your big girl pants and off to work you go. And then by the time I got home, I was fine. I mean, I don't know. I just forgot about it. But when I was retired for that week or whatever it was, I'd wake up with whatever. And by the time, you know, the afternoon passed, I was sure I was dying. I mean, there's nobody to focus on but yourself. And so I did. I did a very, I was very competent at thinking about nothing but me. I mean, the narcissism and that was just incredible. So that was a real motivation. I, the one thing I don't want to do ever, even whether I'm 80, 90 or 22, I don't want to stagnate. And that was a really uncomfortable feeling. So then when I did go to school, I'm sorry, you were going to say something. I saw you. No, I was, no, I was just going to say like, and, and I mean, you say a little bit of that in your book where you thought, well, oh my God, the days are going to get really freaking long if I don't do something. And that really resonated with me because I mean, I see certain people and, you know, people around me that I'm very close with who are older and retired. And, you know, the, I can see the loneliness, the depression possibly yeah. setting yeah. in. Um, and just like, yeah, I can hardly wake it to like, what's going to happen today. And yeah, that's a, that, that was super insightful. Well, I think that one of the things that you need to think about for, for everybody that's getting older is you need to prepare for it and you have to find something that's satisfying to you. And for me personally, sitting around, and I'm, a, I'm an avid reader, but just reading all day or watching television, it's not meaningful. It's interesting, it's entertaining, mm-hmm. but it's not meaningful. And I think that's an important distinction. And when I went back to UCLA, you know, everybody was, re- the professors, everybody was really nice to me. Well, first of all, I was their age, for one thing, you know, or a lot of them. Um, so, you know, they took care of me. You were probably refreshing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you were probably refreshing, actually. It was probably like, oh, my God, somebody who's actually going to come and who's going to actually be interested right, in taking this course from end to end. Somebody who wants to be. No, it's true. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I learned, but you asked about one of the other things that, that motivated me to write the book and sort of figure something out to do was that I learned so much in the anthropology. I've never, I'd never taken anthro as a kid. I was an English major and I learned so much about, I took a lot of medical anthropology and I learned so much about women and doctors and the gender bias that really permeates the medical industry. And it is an industry. And I thought there, this is information that women need to know. And I didn't know it. And I read a lot of medical journals. I've always been interested. I mean, in my next life, I might be a doctor. I've just always been into it. And I didn't know some of this. I mean, I didn't know that women are misdiagnosed more than men are. And I didn't know that women wait longer uh, to have a heart attack treated than a man does, even though they have the same symptoms. I mean, I didn't know stuff like that. It had never happened to me only because I'd never really been ill. But I, w- I was lucky I'd never been ill. I think that uh, being female is, it can be really risky for your health. And I did not know that. So that was what really inspired me to write the book. Exactly. And and one thing you do say in the book is like how we just, we as women don't really have these conversations with other women and we barely have the conversation with our doctor. Right. And, you know, I, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, I, even when I turned 50, I had like every single menopausal system yes. possible right. all in like with the first six months. 
And I thought to myself, how the hell do I not know this, you know? And so then you start asking your friends and like, oh yeah, like, why were we not talking about this? Why didn't you talk to me that you were going through these struggles? And so that, that's something that I think you got super curious in when you were interviewing, you started the, this project with your school. Before we go down that path though, I want to just ask you a quick question. Um, or I just want to ask you like, okay, so, you you you're you're now retired for about a week you realize <laughs> golfing and lunching that's eh, probably not going to be it um you know i'm living with a narcissist myself you know kind of thing and so you 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 have the courage the courage to go back to school like did you not have like that what are people gonna think oh my god like i'm gonna you know i'm too old how am I possibly going to keep up with the pace of going back to school like that? Like, were there oh, I had sort all of like, what were there? Had to I re- every one of them that you said, first of all, I was so anxious on the first exam that I actually tripped up the steps, not down, but up. So <laughs> right on my butt, just, I mean, it was pure anxiety. Who falls up the steps? I never heard of such a thing. So yes, I had all of those. I wasn't worried about keeping up particularly. I only took two classes a semester because I'd already graduated and I I had thought about the PhD and in terms of thinking that I would be too old, which did occur to me, obviously, because what do they take seven years to get? But I thought, so in seven years, I'm going to be 68. I'm going to be 68 anyway. I might as well be 68 with a PhD. I mean, that felt really good. Um, So that, that, that sort of took care of that thought. But the only thing I felt was a little lonely on campus because, you know, they were all kids. And I mean, not that you can't have intergenerational friendships, but the difference between 60 and 20 is fairly substantial. Um, And so, I mean, I met met a couple of kids that I really, really enjoyed. I have to say that. But basically, it, it was lonely. But on the other hand, it was so interesting to me. And I felt so good about myself. I was finally getting up in the morning. I had a place to go. I had homework to do, which at time, you know, my friends would be out lunching and golfing or whatever they were doing. And I'm home studying. And I thought, what's wrong with this picture? But by the same token, mm-hmm. I, I felt very satisfied doing it. So it, it took away the narcissism. It really did when I realized how difficult it is for women who are sick to really get effective care. And that continue, that keeps yeah. the motivation going. And I love when you were saying that, you know, you were getting, you were, you know, you're getting up every day, you're going to school, you were doing, you know, you, you felt sort of purposeful again. And I think though, even though that people are retired and they do enjoy the golfing and they do enjoy the lunching, eventually I think that sense of purpose or the lack of purpose, if they're not volunteering or giving back, giving their skills and talents back to the world, I think we'll always have that aha moment where okay, great. I've got this, I finally got, you know, got this life, but yet I just don't feel like I have any purpose. Okay. So you're in, in university, a tiny bit lonely because, you know, there's a huge age gap differential, but Hey, you're upskilling still, you're learning, you're feeling, you're feeling great about yourself, your, your, your mindset's in check. And so you start down this path of, um, you know, interviewing some women about their hysterectomies, their uh, unnecessary surgeries, 
Um, and then the conversation just gets broader and broader, but it's still around women's health. Tell us a little bit more. What did you, what did you uncover during those interviews? Oh, so much. Um, first of all, I interviewed about 50 or 60 women. And the first thing I learned, and if, I mean, if there's anybody out there that's a writer and wants to interview people, it's so much better to interview people you don't know. Because I, even UCLA, and that's obviously a reputable institution, they were amazed at the intimacy of the information I got. Because uh, we are talking about a hysterectomy. So a lot of the women told me about their sex lives, sexual preferences, all that kind of thing. In fact, one of the women said to me, well, I'll never see you again, so it's okay if I tell you. And she was right. I mean, we had a lovely conversation and I haven't seen her since. But you can't do that if it's somebody you know. So that's the first thing I learned just as an interviewing technique. But I learned how many women don't talk about their illness, how many women feel ashamed and are, feel guilty when they're ill because they can't be as strong and, and, and take care of their families as, as well as they want to have been in the past and feel that they're expected to. So I learned about the guilt and the shame I learned about their hesitation to get a, a second opinion. I learned about misdiagnoses. Oh, I learned so much. I really did, um, which is why I wrote the book, because I think in many ways, while gender bias certainly permeates the medical community, I also think that sometimes some women in some ways um, do themselves a disservice by some of the decisions we make, such as not getting a second opinion or feeling guilty. Mm -hmm. And the main thing, yeah. I'm sorry, go on. No, and, and I, I want to drill down on feeling guilty. Like, why did they, why do we feel guilty? And, and when we talked earlier, I was like, I don't know, do I feel guilty if I got sick? And then I thought, you know what, there's probably, you know, when you go through each one of the sections of your book, you know, you, you're, you're really not talking so much about the medical aspects, but you're talking about the mindset right. of these women right. and what, right? And then the impacts on your health. And then I kind of had a little aha and I'm like, these are almost the same types of mindsets that you could apply to anything we do as women. Mm -hmm. We put people, we, all, we put, you know, we use our money towards our kids and other people first. Right. Like it's really interesting. And that's what I liked about the book is that it, it, it's a medical resource, I would say, yes, right? But it's not, yeah, but, but you're not a doctor, but what you are is you're surfacing these weird things that we get in our brain that, and we do these really crazy things and we stop ourselves from doing things that are right for us and good for us because why? I, I don't get it. So like, why Why am I feeling guilty well, I, because I got sick? Just to sort of piggyback on what you said, one of the things that's different about this book, because you're absolutely right, I'm interested in behavior. I, I can't tell you how yeah. to cure your diabetes or how to live with diabetes. I mean, I exactly. whatever it is, that's not this book. This book is about what we do the, as women, the decisions we make, why we make them, and how they help us and how they don't help us. And for example, I, yeah. I don't feel ashamed or guilty when I get sick. I get pissed. I get so angry. But I was amazed at the amount of women that really did feel guilty. And to answer your question of why, I mean, that's a big question. That would take, you know, 12 interviews. But I think that honestly, um, we're cultured. We're, we're so, we're, what's the word I would, culturally expected 
to take care of other people. I mean, that's why the airline says, you know, put your own mask on before you do your kids. We're caretakers. Women globally all over the world do 80% of the caretaking. I mean, that's a lot. We, we work, we have our, 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 professional jobs and our domestic jobs. We run the house. I mean, my husband was a wonderful cook and a very bright man, and he really did so much to help in the house, but he could not open the refrigerator and make a shopping list. He could not figure out what we needed. So I would, wherever I was in the middle of whatever, I'd have to go down and make the shopping list. I mean, it was like he had an IQ of 12, you know, it was ridiculous. And I think that that's so true. And it's just so automatic. I would trot down the stairs, make the shopping list and say, thank you for going to the store, whatever. But I think that it's just a cultural expectation because there's really no logic behind it whatsoever. Um, And I I think that that's a big why. And it just seems to be, it transcends cultures. It really does. It's it's all. Absolutely. So, okay, so one of the common themes that you, that resonated, so so at this point, you really, when you're interviewing these 50 women, you're not really clear if there's a book. When was it that you had this aha that, holy cow, I think I've got a book here? Because I think what people think is, if I'm going to write a book, I need to know the table of contents before I get started writing. Oh, that's and such a good you're, Oh, that's just such a good point. And I was one of those. I started out actually, and I, I I didn't even remember this until we talked earlier and you reminded me, but um, I started out to do a book on women's surgeries. I was going to talk about hysterectomies, cesareans, and I hadn't gotten to the third one yet. So I interviewed women with hysterectomies. I interviewed women with cesareans. And I thought to myself, I don't want to do this book. There's something I'm, I'm, I'm missing the larger picture. And I think, that, so when I, as I interviewed the, the 50, 60 women, I started extrapolating what they had in common, the behavioral characteristics they had in common. Their disease was all, not, I'm not going to say irrelevant because they, they were some serious diseases, but they weren't my focus. The, the decision-making was my focus. And that's when I realized that, I think I realized it twice. Once as I was doing all this extrapolation and I thought, boy, these women, regardless, I, I interviewed women with different diseases on purpose. I mean, some had lupus, some had fibromyalgia, some had breast cancer. I mean, I didn't, it didn't matter. And yet their decision-making progress process was so similar. So I think that was the first time. And then the second thing, when I thought I've, I've got a book, in fact, I have two books. That's when I really began to think about the second book is I put together focus groups because I wanted uh, some geographical diversity. Being in California, I wasn't going to fly. This was not before Zoom, yeah. but I wasn't familiar with Zoom. And so I wasn't going to fly all over the country. I didn't have that kind of money. So we put on, on Zoom or whatever website we use, we put together, I had a facilitator and we put together a focus group of women, again, from different, with different diseases and from different parts of, of the United States, not, not national, I mean, not internationally, but I was amazed at how many of the women, in fact, most of them had never talked with anybody other than their doctor about their illness. And when they got together and, and realized how much they had in common, how much their fears, their worries, their anxieties were similar, again, regardless of their particular disease. I almost didn't need the facilitator. I mean, they just went at it. 
And I thought, wow, you know, what stops us from talking about it? And again, it's the guilt and the shame. What are people going to think? One of the things I, I really learned, and I think it was one of the most important things I learned, is that a lot of women blame their illness on their stress. That's why they feel so ashamed and guilty. They see their, their stress as causing their illness because they see themselves as overstressed. So when they get sick, it's like a, it's like saying advertising to the world, look at me, I can't manage my stress. I can't manage my life. My life is making me sick. Instead of feeling everybody's stressed, sometimes some days are worse than others. I mean, whatever it is, we all feel. The women, the women I talked with don't realize how random illness is. I mean, some people get COVID, some don't, and some are stressed and some aren't. And even the ones that are, I'm stressed, my husband just died. I've never gotten COVID. I mean, I've been really lucky. So it, it isn't necessarily a question of what you're doing or not doing. You can just be in the wrong place at the wrong time and have the bad luck to get it. And nobody re that I talked with, very few of them, really realized that. They were sure that it was their failure as women, as wives, and as mothers that were making them sick. And I think that is a, a really strong answer as to why some of us feel that way. Uh, and I love that. And everything you're saying there, I just think, okay, how, that could also apply to this. That could also apply to that. And like, even just like a lot of women in their fifties find themselves getting divorced. They find themselves in financial strain, maybe, maybe not financial difficulties, but financial strain. And I could see them, you know, blaming themselves for everything that has happened over the past, you know, 30 years. Oh, I should have made a better decision. I mean, I've even been guilty of that a little bit. Like, you know, I, had I not got married to that person right. 20 years ago, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but so, so what, were there answers then? Like you're, you're, you've got these focus, this focus group. And so what did you, what did you sort of realize when they're all starting, like you said, you didn't need a facilitator anymore. You actually probably could have just let the conversation yeah. ride. And these women are sharing stuff. And, and there is this thing where you get women together in a community in a safe environment of like-minded women, and they will share their stories. But I think honestly, quite often, I think possibly Maybe they don't think that anybody cares. Well, what, you know, what my problem is, whatever, it's minuscule compared to whatever yes. else is out there. What did you hear anything in those that those interviews that, you know, sort of gave you some answers? And, and in, in your book, each chapter has a little summary of like, you know, here's what you could do next. Right. You know, your, your annual checkups, your, you know, all those things. But what was sort of the common themes that you heard? if they could have do it differently, maybe. I heard several things, that, which you actually mentioned. Several of the women said, well, nobody cares. You know, when people say, how are you? It's a retort. They don't really want to know. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you're, my, my problems are boring. Other people said, particularly those that had autoimmune diseases, people said people just think they're whining. They got a lot when they did tell people, which was very rare, they, people would say, well, you don't look sick, which of course is completely dismissing what they just told you. Um, but they felt yeah. basically that they were boring, number one. 
And number two, they didn't want people to know because to 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 these whip these particular women anyway, it meant that they couldn't manage their lives, that they couldn't handle things. Um, and so and that was so untrue because I could see that so many of them, in spite of their illnesses, were doing the best they could under the circumstances. And you know that that I want to go back to divorce a minute because my children have gotten divorced, um, and they they too felt guilty and i i want to just say that my attitude towards divorce is quite different my attitude is, is if you're in a bad situation get the hell out of it why would you stay in a yeah. relationship that's uncomfortable and even if you're one of those one of the women for example whose husband is just suddenly and surprisingly left that's still not, I still feel that you're better off. I don't want to be with, for me, I wouldn't want to be with somebody who didn't want to be with me. And that's what I told my kids. Um, in their situations, I was just glad they were out of the marriage. It wasn't working. And both husbands, ex-husbands were fine and nothing to do with the husbands. Just wasn't working. So yeah. move on, which is what I felt about my retirement. It wasn't working. So I got out. Of exactly. Um, yeah, no, that's really good. Actually, that's really good because I think we we stay, you know, we stay for kids, we stay for, you know, there's probably financial reasons, we stay, we, you know, we stay for all those crazy reasons. So, okay, so back to the book, you are um, in the book, you talk a little bit about how women and men talk a little bit differently to their doctors. Mm -hmm. So what do you mean? What do you mean by that? Like, yeah, okay. how am I talking to my doctor differently than a guy. That was so interesting to me when I found that research. I was like blown away. First of all, just generally speaking, men are more succinct, more objective. They they view their illness differently th than we do. They, they view it, and I don't like generalizations, but I don't know how else to phrase it. They view their illness, they're, they're going to get together with the doctor and together they're going to solve this problem. Women don't do that. Women go in and I'm as guilty of this. I tell the doctor the whole story. I don't just tell them that I broke my leg. I tell them how I broke my leg and how the pain hurts. And now I can't do this. And I really need to get back on that treadmill. And it's just making me so depressed. And, 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 and I go on and on. And what I think what can happen, and I think, I mean, I think it's really important to tell the doctor everything. Now that I've said that at the same time, it can distort the diagnosis because I'm so busy telling him about how angry and depressed I feel that now he's lost sight that this woman's sitting here with a broken leg or, or she, I shouldn't say he, he or she or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. you, you know, you, you lose sight of the organic nature of the problem and it changes the focus of the visit to the psychological issues. And I think there was a there was a study done where letters were written by male and female cancer patients, and the the, the researchers or the students, whoever they gave the, the letters to, they could tell over I think like sixty or seventy percent of the time which ones were written by women and which were written by men because the conversation styles were so different. The women's were much more interpersonal, much more emotive than the men's, longer, more words. It's really interesting, and I think it's it's so true. Um, and I'm I am actually you know it's got my picture by it that def the definition of women's conversational styles is me 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 for sure. Yeah 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 okay so and so do you think I should go to a male doctor or a female doctor? That question is asked me a lot, and I. Th 
Gosh, it's, it's a more complex answer than you'd realize. First of all, when I started this, the jury was still out. Now it seems, the newer research seems to say that women are better off, and even men maybe, but certainly women with a woman doctor. But there's a caveat that I really want to add. There's also research that a, a, a women's a women a woman doctor takes much more time with you than a man a male doctor does. So it kind of depends what your needs are. If you want a personal relationship and you want to tell your doctor a lot of stuff and spend as much time as you can, then maybe you are better off with a woman doctor. If you're on your lunch hour and you want to dash in and dash out, then you're better off with a male doctor. And now that I've said that, I, again, let's talk about stereotypes because I have right. a psychologist <laughs> who's a male and spends about an hour, maybe an hour and a half with me. I mean, you guys, I'm not making a mistake. An hour, let's forget the hour right. and a half. I mean, that's unheard of. He wants to know how I am and we talk. I mean, I can tell you all kinds of things about him. He can tell you all kinds of things about me. He's fabulous. I have an endocrinologist. I walk in and she says, it's a woman and she says, hi, how are you? And I go fine. And then we move on. I mean, I just lost my husband. I'm not fine, you know, but I'm not, I can yeah. see that that's who she is. So I just, you know, what she's not, not going to bring them back. So it's not going to help me anyway. But so again, it just depends on the individual. Um, and I think too, this sort of, it sort of prompts me to think, you know, how we, we talk a lot about like, taking care, like taking your health care into your own hands as well. So as you mentioned in the book, getting second opinions, understanding, you know, diagnosis. And, you know, obviously I'm not saying go and Google search everything because, I mean, God, that could, you know, Dr. Google is a little bit right. crazy anyway. <laughs> I mean, you could be dead tomorrow by by all, all accounts of a Google search. But you know, I, 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 I agree with that. I, I, I do know a very a, a good friend of mine has a clinic in uh, Calgary that is she specifically designed for vaginal health. And she said, like, you know, you're going to often you're going to a, a doctor that uh, is based very on scientific research. We know that most scientific research, especially around menopause and, you know, human or the women's um, anatomy that you know, it's a little bit dated, but we go into the doctor with those preconceived notions as well. Like even like talking about HRT, hormone replacement, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, yeah, I mean, I know I talk to some of my friends and I ask them if they're on it and they're like, oh God, no, that's caused breast cancer. Right. Oh, but have you ever talked to your doctor about it? Have you ever done some research? Have you talked to other women who are on it? Oh yeah, no, no, no causes breast cancer. No, that's not, I'm, it's not for me. So instead they'll suffer with hot flashes and brain fog and, you know, low libido and depression and all of that kind of stuff. And it's really interesting. Very interesting. Um, so, sorry, go ahead. I think that I want to think a minute. Being in charge of your own health is the most important thing you can do for yourself. And let me for a moment just tell you what I mean about being in charge. I mean, you know, that's an easy thing to say, but there are some specific strategies. And the first one, and I, I have to go through this because I think it's so important, but the first yeah. one is really to make a list and prioritize your symptoms when you go into the doctor. It's so important to have it written down because, again, if you're like me, I get anxious. I forget half of what I wanted to say. Now that I've done my research, now I actually write out a list. I mean, I learned from my own book. Um, but I, it's really, it focuses the visit 
Plus, you get to say everything that you wanted to say when you sat at home thinking about it. And the other thing that's, I think, really important is to do your research. And I mean, Dr. Google is okay, but either use the resource list at the back of my book or find somebody's. Because I, I, I gave, and I'm sure other people have as well, a list of what I consider, at least they were reliable websites at the time that I used them. I did an awful lot of research in this book, and some of the websites I found were, were not value, of value to me at all, and others were fabulous. So it tells you how to do your research. It tells you how to find out if your hospital is, is good. I mean, some hospitals specialize in cardiology, others in neurology. I mean, it depends what procedure or surgery you're having. Um, it tells you how to research your doctor, how to research your disease, et cetera. I think that's really important. And really what's important is second opinions. I mean, if, I mean, if you break your leg and you go in and your doctor says, you know, you've got a broken leg, that's why your leg hurts. Well, you know, you don't need to get a second opinion. But if they told me that I, was, yeah. that I had cancer and I needed chemotherapy or whatever, I certainly would. I think it's really important to remember well, first of all, every doc, I mean, every profession, I don't care if we're talking about podcasters or hairdressers or doctors or plumbers, some are good and some are idiots. And that's just how it is, you know, yeah. and you don't know which yeah. one you have unless you're, you know, you got to do your research. That's number one. Absolutely. And secondly, there's about, gosh, I think it was like 30 or 40,000 different diseases out there. And those are just the ones we know about. And we all see no. what we expect to see. So if you go in complaining of fatigue and I've lost my appetite and I'm a little depressed, those symptoms can fit at least, you know, 39,000 out of the 40,000 diseases. <laughs> so your psychologist right. is going to tell you it's stress. Your rheumatologist is going to tell you where you have, it's the pain, the joint pain. I mean, everybody sees through their own eyes. So what you want when you get a second opinion is a different perspective. I would never go to somebody in the same office. On the contrary, if my doctor did his training at UCLA, I try to find somebody that did their training from SC or NYU or one of those. Um, you want a different perspective. You don't want somebody with the same point of view. So that's my the end of my proselytizing, but that's what I mean by taking charge. No, and I love it, and I love the the resources in the back because you're right. It's 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 even hard to find those resources through a Google search. Like, where can I find the best? Like Mayo Clinic comes up. Well, right. okay, well we all know that right. there's more to right. the Mayo Clinic, right. more than just the Mayo Clinic. So I love that. So the book really, in a nutshell, is like it 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 goes through the the mindset and the psychological aspects of why we as women may not, you know, take care of ourselves right. the way that we should, or, or we mismanage, we sometimes mismanage our healthcare manage. And some, like, I, I think it, 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 I think that was the original that name of the, the book was what, some yeah. women. Yeah. How women, how women how, manage and mismanage their health. And just so everybody knows, I did change the title because it's, it's a book that's pro women. And on TikTok, I, I had a tick, I have a TikTok site and I got over a hundred thousand views on one. I mean, it went viral. That's the only one that did, but nevertheless, everybody yeah. complained they wouldn't buy the book because they thought the book was blaming women, which is exactly the opposite. So I gave up and just changed the title. But so now it's called Sidelined, How Women Can Navigate a Broken Healthcare System, which is not very catchy, but there it is. 
um, uh, but it's a full value proposition for sure. Like it, it definitely that, and that's what it is. It's, it's, you know, if you, if you don't want to talk to your doctor, you don't want to, sh you know, you don't want to talk to other people. Here's why, here's why you're thinking this way. And it really sort of helps you psychologically kind of get through, you know what, God, maybe that's what I'm doing, you know, yeah. and sort of challenge your way of thinking. And then again, at the back is this, this uh, very helpful resources. Um, so before we, we bring it to the close, Susan, let's talk a little bit about the journey of writing this book, because again, you know, sometimes we think, oh, well, I have to have the table of contents, I'll figure it out, and I get all of that. I mean, I know you had, I guess, in every journey of entrepreneurship, whether it's writing a book, starting a business, we have these mindset little games that go along. So we all know that it's not a straight line from A to B. It's it's this line that goes curly, 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 and everything. So take us a little bit through the journey of, of you. Like how many times did you say, oh, screw this. I'm not going to do this. Oh, so I give up. I just... let, let me just back up for a moment. Cause of course I did that a lot. Um, but even when we were in, I think any entrepreneurship, any business you, you start, whether it's writing or training films or whatever is a journey. So we started making, I mean, my husband and I started making, uh, films, videos for early childhood education. I mean, we did films on, I, oh, I don't even know, just for, for kids. I mean, for first grade, second grade. And that was when, that was in the 70s. So it was right when Nixon cut funds for federal uh, education. So we thought, huh, timing is everything and we better do something else. So our original business was going to be children's films. The journey was making training films. I mean, we, we changed midstream. With the book, my journey was I was going to do women's surgeries, and instead I did women's behavior. So don't, that that's the point. Of my, my point is that it's a process. You don't know the table of contents, and even if you think you do, you very well may change midstream. Uh, what I did with with the first book is I interviewed the women and found a book in it. Now I've, I've the second book. I have something I want to say, and I'm going to see if there's women that will t that can tell me their story that will match my my thesis. And then maybe they maybe I won't, and maybe I'll be doing a lot of work and a lot of research, and it won't come out that way at all. So the editing, I mean the the writing process. Well, it is, that was a Freudian slip because it is a matter of editing. I cannot tell you how many times I said, screw this. I'm not a writer. I am going to go ahead, take somebody to lunch and forget this. I mean, that was, that was, if not daily, it was certainly weekly. And I want to just talk for a minute to those writers that are out there. The editing process, get, you have to, when you, when you think that your, your manuscript is together enough, you need a professional editor and don't let anybody talk you out of it. And it can be expensive. It depends who the editor is. I mean, I don't know that there's an average fee, but it's just, and it's just heart rendering. You, you know, you, you turn in something that you think is the next war and peace and it comes back all cut and pasted and redlined. And, oh, it was, I mean, I hope my editor doesn't hear this podcast because I would cry. I would sit there and cry. I mean, I was way past the screw this stage. I was devastated. It was a time in my core. 
And I'm no, and I'm serious. I'm truly not being dramatic. And then my husband would give me a glass of wine or a vodka, and I'd sort of calm down and go to bed. And next day, I'd kind of take another look at what she did and review it and think, well, you know, maybe not, maybe that is better. Anyway, I always ended up accepting, if not 90%, at least 99% of her changes because they were always better. Yeah. Um, so it's a process is what I'm saying. The first thing it does is completely destroy your identity. And then the second thing it does is put you back together again in a new and better way. How's that? <laughs> I love that. That's great. We're going to quote that. And, you know, and it's so true, even just the, just even like starting a business. I mean, my offer has evolved so much, but had I not put it out there, it's, it's what we talked about. Get just get on the path and just stuff will start to show up. You know, had you not decided to go to university, you probably wouldn't have written a book. I don't know, or maybe you would have, no, who knows? I don't so. But I don't the, think so. It, you have to get, it was the food coming in. I mean, you have to get nutrition coming in and then it, it turns you in a direction. You, you, you never know what you don't know. I mean, it's that simple. Absolutely. And 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 learn how to take feedback and you know your editor was your sort of community i guess and you probably you know had a few people reading the you know your transcript along the way so you know you, you you drew on the community you found your support network you had your editor it's no different th than you know starting a business get into a community of women who are trying to do the same thing because as you said when you were uh interviewing the the focus group of women Boy, when they saw that they were with somebody that was like-minded and they were going through the same challenges, all of a sudden they were solving each other's problems. They were sharing stories right. and, and it makes you just feel better. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I love that part of your journey and congratulations for everybody. Again, the book is called Sidelined, How Women Can Navigate a Broken Healthcare System. You can get it through Amazon, I suspect. And yeah, okay, perfect. And, and anywhere books are Yeah. Perfect. And looking forward to the next book because the whole so the subject on this one is shame, correct? Well, well we think it is. No, I, I, exactly <laughs> right. Exactly right. It's turning into much more about gaslighting than I, see, there it is, than I anticipated. <gasps> I started to write. I love it. My title is great. It's about the health risks of being female or, you know, being a female is injurious to your health, something to that effect. And it is. I mean, I had no idea. I just had no idea that, I mean, I just, I just got to say for a minute, when women go to the hospital complaining of pain, I think they are, I, I can't remember exactly, but roughly 15% of women are given pain medication. The rest are told that it's, it's emotional. Then they're given antidepressants and that it drives me crazy. And the same with a heart yeah. attack. Women wait 11 to 15 minutes longer to be treated for a heart attack where time is of the essence than men do. And they can have exactly the same symptoms. We're just not considered yeah. reliable reporters of our own stuff. It's just. That's right. It's terrible. It's, crazy. it's terrible. So the book is changing as, you know, as I get into it. And that that's one of my major points, actually. Um, I love it. I love it. Susan, you've been a real pleasure. Thank you. I definitely want to bring you back for book number two. So hurry up and get that thing written and, and published. I think you're going to find it. I promise. Not 10 years. You know, I can't. That time I don't have. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, thank you again. Uh, you've been, you're, you're a real 
joy. I hope that when I, you know, in a few more years, when I'm in my 80s, that I am just as spry and wonderful as you. So you're Thank a really you inspiration. so much, love. I appreciate it. Thank you.